This is an ABC podcast. I'm actually a bit worried. I'm beginning to sing along with the theme song as it plays now. I think that might be a sign that I've been doing this too long or that the theme song's been around too long and we need to change it. Listen to me just floating radical production ideas on air without speaking to ABC management. Welcome to The Minefield, by the way. This is a program about negotiating the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. It's not usually about production decisions, um, only on this occasion. Walid Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Scott, how are you feeling? I'm feeling well. That is, please admit it, for the world to hear. That is the theme that chirps out from your phone when your alarm goes off there, right? That is your, that is your alarm music. Um, well, do you want it to be? Because normally the alarm is the sound you most hate in the world. <laughs> so be very careful before you encourage me to that kind of answer, because the implications could be quite serious. Uh, yes, or or it makes you sort of desperately reach for a button to disappear for another five minutes as soon as the sound goes off. Yeah, well, and you know what? Weirdly, I can do that because I'm going to ask you what the show's about and then you'll probably talk for five minutes. So I might just disappear. <laughs> I'm going to hit snooze while Scott tells us what's coming up. Go on, Scott. <laughs> what's coming up? Well, look, this is, this is a conversation that I'll confess I've been wanting us to have for quite some time. I can't believe we haven't broached this before given how central, I think, in a very real way, both Walid and I consider it to be to the moral life and to the way that political communities hang together. And yet this is a topic we've never done. And we're bringing in voices that we've never had before. And we're discussing texts that we've never broached. So this is filling me with all sorts of forms of excitement. Let me begin, though, not with the positive, but with the negative. It struck me afresh a few weeks ago when I was reading Anne Applebaum, a wonderful European historian, uh, her new book called The Twilight of Democracy, which, you know, from the title, it sounds like another one of those books in this burgeoning genre of the end of democracy or politics in crisis or what will we do until Trump leaves office style books. Um, and in some respects, it is that, but it's also a bit of a memoir. It's an account of friendships that she used to have and friendships that have subsequently been broken, friendships that she forged in post-communist Poland, and then friendships that have been irredeemably lost due to Poland's own political fragmentation and the emergence, the reemergence of certain forms of far-right politics in Poland itself. It's a really interesting and kind of depressing, rather tragic story, because one of the things that it highlights is that as democracy has been declining in certain parts of the world, one of the things that has accompanied that is the collapse, the destruction of friendships as well. And I think something, Waleed, that you and I have often discussed on this program is the way that anger, the way that forms of public or moral judgment, this person is wrong and almost as an expression of my moral seriousness, I can't have anything further to do with them. That these have become some of the registers, some of the signals of just how seriously we take moral probity or just how seriously we take our moral convictions. That we are so serious about certain matters of certain claims to justice, for instance, certain reckonings with history, that former friendships or relationships can be publicly broken, this person can be denounced, and then that more or less as a kind of consistent uh, reflection of the seriousness with which, with which we take claims of justice, that relationship cannot be redeemed, it can't be put 
together again, that moral judgment has become one of the ways in which we express moral seriousness. And I think, I mean, there's a whole conversation to be had about that, and we've had it, I think, in piecemeal forms at various stages over the years. But I think one of the things that it, I'm struck by the fact that we seem to have laid to the side, we just haven't taken back up again, is the possibility of the generative capacity for forgiveness. In other words, ways of enacting forms of personal, social, and political conciliation, reconciliation, and if Hannah Arendt has anything to say about it, creation. I don't know if you remember, Willie, one of the first concepts that I noticed as we have been doing the show that began reappearing every few episodes uh, was this insight of Aristotle's that you can't build a city on anger. I mean, it's no wonder that he said that you have to build a city both on justice and on friendship. But Aristotle always said that anger is one of those political emotions that is sterile and sterilizing. Nothing good comes of it. And it's interesting to me that Hannah Arendt makes the same judgment about lack of forgiveness or about forms of moral judgment that simply end there. And she regards the practice of forgiveness as one of the great human generative acts that brings something out of nothing and that lets human communities proceed, thereby escaping the fates that we've assigned to ourselves because of our stupid or careless or evil or even to shift into another register, sinful actions. So I was hoping we could spend a little bit of time, the next few minutes, talking about the generative capacity of forgiveness, the possibility, if you like, of second chances within the moral community that we call democracy. Hmm. Where do you want me to take this? Because I think there's something that needs to be fleshed out here Hmm. about the reason that forgiveness has fallen so out of vogue. And part of that, I think, is this idea that, you know, I think we've touched on several times, particularly on shows to do with cancel culture and sort of, you know, related ideas, that forgiveness itself becomes complicity. So what forgiveness does is that it allows, you know, a sore has been exposed and it allows that more or less to be covered up so that everyone can move on with their lives and the status quo can more or less be preserved. That seems to be the argument. I I think there are a whole lot of layers to this that we would need to tease out if we really wanted to get serious about yep. excavating, okay. right? And that is that when you talk about forgiveness, what exactly are you talking about? What kind when you talk about political friendships, what what does that mean? Are you are you talking about some kind of interpersonal thing? In which case I think forgiveness remains a vibrant part of our moral repertoire and our social repertoire? Or are we talking about kind of public acts of forgiveness? In which case, I think it's becoming less and less so. But the reason for that is that we're not having interpersonal relationships at that point. These are not interpersonal conversations or exchanges. These are performative exchanges that exist really at a level of symbolic political exchange. And at that point, forgiveness takes on a new meaning think, which is more or less pardoning the offence itself to some degree, or at least lessening the austerity, the severity with which we regard that particular offence. This is an age, I think, where voices are competing to recast social 
and via them political and moral norms. And mm. the way to do that is to be the most truculent, the, the <laughs> least compromising right. um, exactly and, right. and the loudest that you could possibly be because then you're putting forward some kind of, you know, you're, you're planting a very serious stake in the ground and saying, I will not be moved on this. And that is particularly so where you are claiming to be speaking on behalf of something or someone or some idea or some ideal or some group of people that you say have been systematically crushed or marginalised or excluded from public and mainstream and institutional reckoning. So at that point, I think forgiveness comes to be seen not merely as not particularly useful or generative, but actually positively oppressive. That's right. Unless there is this sort of rather formulaic process of confession uh, and acceptance of wrongdoing, a performative kind of remorse, at which point forgiveness can arrive because that is now reinforcing the newly reconstructed social norm that we're attempting to urge upon others. Yeah. So I think it depends what level mm. you're trying to talk about here. Yeah. Look, I, that's, that's wonderfully teased out. I suspect that on a private level, uh, in other words, in the dimension of the interpersonal, I fear that forgiveness is a practice that we have allowed to atrophy. Really? Uh, I really, yeah. I don't think people I forgive each other anymore in private life. I do think they forgive one another, but I think the ways in which we have learnt and we have come to expect that relationships will reach a certain point at which they break and the degree to which we've accepted that friendships are frequently transactional or or that friendships are – and this is, I guess, the image I, uh, I like to use – that friendships are, aren't really about the benefit that one receives through the provocation of the presence of the other. But rather, friendship becomes the thing where we sit side by side and enjoy a third object together. So it becomes the friendship of football, if you like, or the friendship of movies rather than the friendship of moral encounter. Um, so that, that's, that, I suspect, mm. is another conversation. I feel like that's a bit day. of a caricature. It may be a caricature, but I think it's something that can be defended on a number of levels. Well, unless, unless what I'm picking up is that you've been quite influenced by, uh, you know, an experience that happens elsewhere as well, but is a very American experience at the moment where you hear all these endless stories of families that have been torn apart over whether or not they support Donald Trump and that kind of political movement. They can no longer speak to each other at Christmas or whatever it is. The kind of thing you used to hear in countries like Egypt, right, where families would yes, divide right. over <laughs> whether or not they supported the regime or the brotherhood or whatever. You know, that, that kind of thing seems yep. to have come to America. So if you're detecting that, no, then I think that's not, a fair thing to detect, but I wouldn't want well, to project I, that more I mean, broadly. that is that yeah. is happening, um, but that's not really what I'm talking about. I mean, this, this is, I think, part of the generation upon generation atrophine of the privilege that we have, that has long accor been accorded to friendship. So much so that Aristotle could say that friendship is the fundamental human relationship and something as fundamental as marriage is a subspecies of the moral bond that exists between friends. So again, I think that's a conversation for another day. When you described forms of performative forgiveness, ways in which, for instance, people who have been, for want of a better term, exiled, who have been cancelled, uh, and the ways in which they can then be brought back into human community such that 
they are no longer political or moral pariahs. I think that's probably what is more at front of mind at the moment for me, um, precisely for the reasons that you identify, that we think that the register, the way that we express, the way that we register our moral seriousness, our commitment to a particular political cause is by purifying our relationships and by ensuring that there is no complicity with those who happen to be or through their own stupidity or complicity or conspiracy uh, have ended up on the wrong side of a moral divide. What I think is really important, though, is that the very performative acts of forgiveness and of of forms of, uh, of reconciliation, these, I think, are the ways in which democracies move forward. I mean, democracies are the politics of the second chance because none of us believe that we have a complete solution to a given problem. None of us believe that we have a full grasp on the truth. I don't know if you recall, but when we spoke to Sophia Rosenfeld about uh, truth, democracy, and conspiracy last year, she was pointing out that the very particular relationship of a democracy to truth is that democracies are always striving towards but never quite reach truth because we believe that we need one another in order to discover truth. So we're all stumbling forward to try to find something, and we need one another to cut each other, I suppose, a degree of slack while we arrive at a position that's morally and politically defensible. And I guess what I worry about are by these very forms of cutting things short, of cutting people off, of bringing things to an end, of, of, of enacting these various forms of moral judgments as ways of signaling our moral seriousness, we are actually killing, I think, one of the most vital aspects of any moral or political community that deserves to be called the name. Yep. But democracy died a long time. Anyway, let's forget that. (laughs) This is The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing right now. But you can catch us anytime on the ABC Listen app at your convenience, which is the fashion of the time. Or you can subscribe to our podcast wherever you subscribe to such things. We have extra content there where we just keep going after we get kicked off air. Usually that's the fun bit, I reckon. Anyway, Scott's here to introduce us to our guest. Our guest. This is a a huge delight. One of the things I can't quite believe about this job is that I get to read really, really excellent books. And if I've really loved them, we have a stab at getting the author on the show. And that's precisely what's happening now. Sarah Beckwith is the Catherine Everett Gilbert Distinguished Professor of English at Duke University. She's the author of, I have to say, Sarah, one of my top five books I've ever, I mean, it's one of those books that I found life-changing. It's called Shakespeare and the Grammar of Forgiveness. Shakespeare, that's right. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. It's a great pleasure. And thank you, Scott. I'm uh, extraordinarily flattered. Of course, I want to know what the other top four are, but that's perhaps a different conversation. <laughs> <laughs> it is. So, so look, we, I, I realize I'm taking a bit of a gamble here because, well, my suspicion is that you're not a great Shakespeare aficionado. Well, it's all relative. I did okay at high school. <laughs> well, that's a, that, that's a good base for us to work from. Uh, Sarah, I'm, I'm going to get you to kind of lay out, I suppose, one of your fundamental theses about what it is that differentiates the final plays of Shakespeare from his earlier plays, which really did enact a form, I think perform a form of justice or capital F, fate. And yet there's a different tone, I think, in Shakespeare's final plays that opens up, it seems to me, political and moral possibilities that we often fail to address. Do you want to sort of begin pointing this in the right direction? Oh, of course. Um, 
That's that's absolutely right. And these this group of plays, they're usually grouped as four, and they're often called the late plays, Pericles, Cymbeline, The Winter's Tale and The Tempest, um, have had various designations attached to them. Sometimes they're called romances, sometimes simply Shakespeare's late plays. Um, Stanley Cavell rather brilliantly calls at least two of them remarriage comedies. I myself like to think of them as post-tragic plays uh, because they have to move through a tragic terrain. Um, Scott, you had invoked Hannah Arendt before. The domain of human action that Arendt writes about so brilliantly uh, in The Human Condition is that is that action is boundless, it's unpredictable, it's irreversible. I mean, in other words, uh, these are the grounds for tragedy where, as Lady Macbeth famously says, what's done cannot be undone. You can call that fate, um, which was the word that Scott has used. In a sense, I think it's more like the kind of necessities that emerge out of the kind of things that are the case, but that may not have been the case, i.e. human contingencies. So, in a sense, it's it's amazing that Shakespeare could have written anything after the excoriating explorations of King Lear. We're left in that play uh, with with glimmers, I think, of, of grace, but with a relentless and remorseless way in which every character has been exposed uh, relentlessly to the logic of his own actions, um, that no no reprieve, no excuses um, here, and not even the, at the end of the play, the kinds of recognition that one might expect um, from tragedies. But in these late plays, they're all in some senses reworkings of King Lear. They all return to various uh, idioms that are, that, are, that are announced in King Lear. And they give us endings that are incredibly fragile so that very often they'll start in a tragic idiom Um, the winter's tale seems to revisit Othello it starts with a jealous king who doesn't need a yargo in order to uh, imagine that his wife has committed adultery with his best friend and is is a traitor to the crown and indeed to disown his own his own son as, as as his so you start in a kind of a tragic idiom and then the the romance plot, a very, very ancient form in a way, allows for a kind of space of recognition, in the case of The Winter's Tale, um, of, of remorse that gives you different possibilities of human endeavor, different possibilities for, uh, as you were saying, Scott, second chances, different endings. And in the process of writing these plays, Shakespeare seems to explore the big R-E words, remembrance, revenge, um, retaliation and the possibilities of those, but also remorse, uh, recollection, recognition, I think, um, above all. And he gives us encounters towards the end of these plays where the subject is the dawning realization um, of the, the claims of another person. And this seems something so small and yet something so very, very large um, that a society's capacity to go on, that the capacity of a relationship to go on can depend on something so fragile and yet so uh, absolutely essential to the workings, I think, of any of any social order. 
Um, and I'm talking in quite abstract terms here, but of course these are done through the medium of, of drama and through the most uh, moving kinds of recognitions. I mean, the, the, the Winter's Tale is famously uh, gives us this extraordinarily surprising scene um, of uh, Leontes wife who has been pronounced dead and who reappears in the very last scene as a statue who mysteriously comes to life, whether or not she's a statue or somebody who, who, who's simply been uh, squirreled away um, by the, the sort of high priestess figure Paulina. What Shakespeare offers us uh, in that last scene is an encounter of Leontes with this, this figure um, of Hermione and then this electrifying realization of her of her very existence. And it's a it's a complex rewriting of Pygmalion because Hermione is is not, as it were, the statue um, that in Ovid's story Pygmalion makes of Galatea, that, that it's his creation that's come to life, but rather it's the otherness, the very existence um, and difference of Hermione uh, that Leontes has to remember. And he, the, the, the piece of art, the statue, conjures to mind his own conscience. And so a condition, I think, of Hermione's reawakening is precisely Leontes' remorse, that the realization of the existence of, of, of Hermione's claims on him um, and his remorse are sort of are really coterminous in, in, the, in the ending of the play. It's something can that I you just, have to see. Yeah. Can I just pick... Pick something up here. I hope you don't mind, Walid. Um, but there's there's something here. I think just to I guess sharpen this to a to a kind of sort of point that maybe we can pick up in the podcast portion of the show. One of the other things that's long struck me about these four plays as well, probably more than any other, Cymbeline, which is I'm I'm weird in this, but it's long been one of my favorite plays of Shakespeare's. Um, is that it's very hard to identify villains as such. In these late plays, I mean, there are there are corrupt or corrupted or relatively bad or stupid or ham-fisted figures like Posthumus or like Yakimo, both of them in 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 Cymbeline, and yet um, W. H. Auden recognized that there aren't villains like Iago. Instead, what there are instead of there being corrupt figures, there are corrupted relationships. And so what needs to happen at the end of each of these plays is that the relationships need to be stitched back together again. And it, it just yeah. strikes me that there is a kind of political implication to that, that we have subscribed, I think, to capital E evil in many of our political and moral judgments about figures. And I just wonder if one of the first ways to open ourselves up to the miracle of forgiveness is by giving ground on precisely that point, that maybe these figures aren't the capital E evil figures, like a kind of archetypal figure like Iago, but these are people who are stupid or misguided or weak or just human. And somehow it's the relationships yes, themselves that need to be knit back together again rather than simply condemned. It's such, a, such an interesting insight. And I, I think the idea that they're not quite villains has to do with the world of these late plays, which is a world in which, in some senses, the protagonists are redeemed from the consequences of their own actions. So that, that's not really going to be a world that, in which villainy is, 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 going, to, is going to thrive. Um, so that the, the actions that they commit are not going to end up um, in, in, a, in a tragic space. 
I think you're so right about the knitting together of relationships and that the plays point us to an understanding of forgiveness, which is not in the least about uh, the absolution of individual guilt. It is about the reconciliation and restoration of a community. So the emphasis is always on, on the relationships that are more than interpersonal. They're, they're, they're more than here between king and queen, say, um, or between reunited lovers. Um, but in, on Cymbeline, in Cymbeline, after all, you, you get the, the, the great uh, reconciliation between ancient Britain uh, and, and Rome, as, as well as Posthumus and Imogen at the end of that extraordinary play. We, we do have to leave it there for now because, of course, uh, the radio portion of the show is at an end. There seems to be a lot to unpack there, particularly as to considering what the difference is really when we're talking about characters. Um, in a fictional world as opposed to when we're talking about people in the real world, particularly in the political sphere, because I think a completely different logic seems to apply. Scott, I think we've observed before there's a kind of increasing purity in the political sphere at the same time as we're embracing anti-heroes in, yes, the, in the fictional sphere, which is exactly. quite an interesting juxtaposition. But uh, we don't have time for that right now, maybe in the podcast. Um, Sarah Beckwith, well, hopefully I think will stay with us. Um, we'll double her pay if she does. She's the Catherine Everett Gilbert Distinguished Professor of English at Duke University, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. We're now at an end on the radio. We'll see you on the podcast now and we'll see you on the radio next week. Sarah, so I've just thrown something in. I don't know whether it's something you want to talk about or not, but look, I have the microphone, so bad luck. That's where we're going. I'm interested in yeah. in, in this idea about this contradictory approach that we have, it seems, to our, our levels of empathy for fictional characters as opposed to real people. And part of that, I suppose, is protagonist bias. Like, I often think about the fact that if I'm watching a television show uh, or a film or a play, I, I'm barracking for a person mostly because they are the dominant character in the narrative. And if you told the same story with a different character at the centre of it, I would end up barracking for the opposite side of this thing. So, you know, there's a kind of arbitrariness, I suppose, to how we go about this. But is there anything that we can, is there any extrapolation we can make? Is there anything that we could take from our approach to fictional characters and apply in the real world that would be plausible and convincing? Well, uh, there's such an interesting and, and very, very provocative set of reflections that, that your remarks could, could lead to, I think. And there's a strange way in which we sometimes can know characters more intimately than we know other people. I mean, they, they are fully intentional creations of an author, everything that it, there is intended. And we might very well feel like we know those people, we know those characters more than we might with, with, with other people. People. So um, I think that's one space of intimacy that, that when we keep saying, well, it's not real, it's fictional, we, we, we perhaps occlude. Um, uh, the theatre is a really interesting case in point because, of course, what we're allowed to do in the theatre um, is to feel all the emotions that we might feel in real life. Um, someone is going to murder somebody. Um, you you rejoice that someone is getting back together with somebody. You, you're you're rooting for Cordelia as she as she greets her her father once once again. All all of these scenes, the emotions that you feel, I think, are very very real. 
But what you don't have to do in the theatre is you're not obliged to respond. In fact, Stanley Cavell, the great theorist of the medium of theatre, says that you can't. I mean, you, you, you respond to the characters, but they can't respond to you. I mean, were, were you to interrupt Othello from murdering Desdemonia, the play, the play would simply come to an end. You, you can't, as it were, in that sense, interrupt him. So I think that theatre, for one thing, actually allows you a kind of space where you're absolved of the responsibility of the kinds of actions that otherwise are just your constant burden. You know, I mean, as Scott was talking about ethics and moral judgment, um, but it, it, in a sense, one is never absolved from one's accountability and responsibility in real life. But in the theatre, um, there's, there's literally nothing that you can do. And that, I think, creates a, a rather extraordinary space for contemplation. Um, can you carry that out into uh, the real world, as it were? Yes, I think um, if you if you care about and credit um, and allow yourself to be tutored uh, by works of art. Right. But then the question for me becomes, would you want that? Like, would you want to carry it into the real world? I'm fascinated because I I, um, interviewed, actually, as it happened, it was Russell Crowe because he he did a film recently, which uh, was it called Unhinged, I think was the name of it. And he plays this character that is thoroughly unhinged. And there's nothing likable about this character. And I asked him about that. I said, every time I speak to an actor, they talk about needing to find something that they like in their character. That's something that they can latch on to, um, mm-hmm. that they can understand this character in some way and they, they have to be able to build an affection for their character in order to go out and perform this character. And he shot back at me really quickly and said, that's just crap. <laughs> he, said, he said, that's a particular British tradition of acting, but that he doesn't subscribe to it at all. And if, to use the obvious example, if he were playing Hitler, he wouldn't need to find anything redeeming about him. And he thinks he shouldn't find anything mm-hmm. redeeming about him in order to, to play that character. But nonetheless, the fact that that exists as an acting tradition tells you that this is demanding of people, or at least in the view of some of the people involved, it's demanding of them an ability to empathise with those who possibly deserve little empathy. Or we might, in the public sphere, say it would be dangerous to be showing empathy towards. So that raises that question for me. How, how much do we want to, to bring the kinds of human responses we have to literature into the non-literary world, if you like? Mm. Well, uh, you're, you're talking to an English professor, so, <laughs> so the answer that you're going to get um, is is that is that it's 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 an incredibly important uh, school, I think. But but it, it's not a necessary one. People can find all kinds of other ways. I, th- I think there's nothing. Uh, reading works of literature obviously doesn't make you a better person. There's there's there's, mm. there's no question about that. But but. I, in the case of Shakespeare's theatre, for example, I see it as um, a mode of live philosophizing, um, a series of astonishing thought experiments, uh, which which place people in positions uh, in order to find out what they would do um, and what 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 it is that's that, that's happening. And and it is interesting what you say about Russell Crowe. I and I I would agree with him that you don't need to find something sympathetic or, or that you like about the character, but you do need to um, motivate. Uh, the words that that character speaks, uh, which is, which I think is a very, very different thing, actually. Mm, uh, yes, but it, re- uh, it still requires a level of understanding and empathy. Well, 
Sorry, I shouldn't say that because he completely disputes that and he's a much better actor than I will ever be. But <laughs> um, but you see what I mean? There's got to be a kind of understanding, or at least we're being invited into that space. And mm-hmm. I just wonder what that means when it becomes real life. Like that, that observation you make about the theatre creating a space where you are impotent, you cannot respond and therefore all you can do is reflect and it's surprising where those reflections take you. Um that you, you describe that as though it's a desirable thing, and I think it is a desirable thing, but it's also simultaneously unrealizable and potentially even undesirable in the real world, isn't it? What, well, of what, course. I think you're right. It's undesirable in the real world because that that's we're not absolved of our responsibility um, for what we do and how we respond to others. We're, we're endlessly exposed, I think, to our responses to each other in that world. Absolutely right. We wouldn't wouldn't wish it any other way. Or at least we don't get it any other way. Whether we would wish it any other way, I think, is a different thing. Yes, and yet it compels us to respond perhaps before serious reflection. And I suspect that's what we've been talking about for years now, Scott. That's mm-hmm. really the thing. It's that the imperative to react trumps the imperative yeah. to reflect. Yes, yes, yes. Forgiveness, I think, is a is a, is a massive interruption <laughs> of the, the sort of reaction, retaliation. It interrupts, it interrupts that trajectory um, precisely, I think. Can I just pick up one of the other RE words that you mentioned before, Sarah, namely remorse? Um, yes. Uh, I mean, be, because I think all three of us in varying degrees have been deeply influenced by the philosophy of Raymond Gaeta, you know, the, the, the importance of remorse as giving yes. full affective recognition to the reality of the other person and therefore yes. my culpability in the diminishment of their full humanity. I mean, remorse is an incredibly serious moral emotion. And, and, and the way that you then see that at work, especially in Winter's Tale, I mean, King Leontes, no sooner does he accuse his wife and imprison Hermione for infidelity and then that sort of that misjudgment, that moment of, of, of moral evil, you have to call it, not only mm-hmm. costs his son his life, Mamilius, but it also, yes. it also, as far as he knows, costs Hermione his life, yes. uh, her life. And then no sooner does that take place, and there's this kind of, there's this realization, there's this encounter with his own culpability, and mm-hmm. he has to live with that for a very, very, very long play. And so it makes then the moment of Hermione's coming back to life again a kind of recognition of the depth of his own remorse. But that, the, the miracle of having a person that one has wronged restored to oneself Yes. I mean, if, 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 if we're talking about the real world, that just – that doesn't happen, especially to this degree. So what I'm wondering here, I, th- I think we can all understand those occasions where remorse necessarily precedes forgiveness and reconciliation. Mm-hmm. But I'm also wondering, especially in the example, say, of Cymbeline, I think this is probably more realistic for us. Remorse – Oftentimes, there's no place for it because there's no stage upon which there's no public space in which two people can encounter one another. And we can recognize, my God, this is what my actions did to you. This is the effect that that thing that I wrote had on you. This is the effect that the policy that I voted for, this is the effect that it had on your life. There, are very, there aren't many spaces for that kind of moral encounter. And what we often find instead, I think, mm. is moments of forgiveness 
or moments of attempted reconciliation, if you like, coming out of nothing, coming out of the blue. And that really is what happens at the end of Symboling, where you have this extraordinary kind of festival of truth-telling and mutual encounter where people don't realize just how wrong they were until they are encountered by the other person. So, here, that, this has been a very long lead-up to my question, Sarah. We yeah. all, I think, recognize the importance of remorse. But what about those moments of truly generous forgiveness or attempts at reconciliation even before the remorse has been, has been displayed? I, I love the fact that Cymbeline is one of your favorite plays. Um, I, I, it's such an underrated and, and extraordinarily rich play. Well, yes, Posthumus is a fascinating case in point because um, he orders uh, his servant Pisanio to murder Imogen. He thinks that he's done so. He carries the bloody cloth that then, then becomes, it's a sign of her murder. It becomes a relic and a sign of his own remorse uh, in the play. It's a sort of revisiting of the, of the handkerchief in Othello. And um, from what, first of all, his her putative adultery, which led to the most misogynistic rant in English literature, is mm. there no way for him to be, but women must be half workers. He decides, he feels the remorse when he still thinks Imogen has committed adultery, and he calls it rying but a little. In other words, it becomes to him a completely trivial offence in relationship to what he's just done with her. He makes he tries to make all of these bargains with God, take my life in exchange for hers. And uh, that, of course, leads, leads absolutely nowhere. But you're right that one of the wonders of this multiple recognition scene at the end of Cymbeline is that the whole community, as it were, is restored to itself because each person, if you like, begins telling the truth, which turns out to be one part of a larger story, which cannot be told without that uh, individual truth telling. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a tour de force in that in exactly that sense, and it's a, it's an instance of the idea that you can't have reconciliation uh, without truth, so that they discover, if you like, literally who they are um, in that magnificent scene at the end in, in relationship to each other, in multiple relations to each other. I'm afraid we have to end there because um, I'm being told we cannot go any later than we've already gone uh, with the <laughs> studio bookings the way they are, Sarah. But it's been a, a delight to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.